It's Monday, January 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Get ready for another eventful week as state houses across the country and the capital beef up security and prepare for protests and possible violence leading up to the inauguration of Joe Biden. We will also be seeing another round of pardons from President Trump with a possible self-pardon. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this and what Biden plans to do in his first days in office. Next, a large study of patients that have had COVID-19 shows that six months later, more than three quarters of them were still experiencing at least one lingering symptom. The most common issue was ongoing exhaustion, followed by muscle weakness and difficulty sleeping. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times, joins us for the continued health issues COVID survivors face. Finally, the pandemic has fundamentally changed access to entertainment and possibly for the better. The live events industry has suffered under health restrictions and forced many events to go virtual. While live streamed events can't replace the experience or financial benefits, it has opened events to wider audiences and will probably be part of the mix going forward. Emily Yar, entertainment reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how virtual events may be here to stay. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're not anticipating any specific kinds of threats, but we are taking every precaution to make sure that these protests are, are their constitutionally guaranteed right to peaceably assemble and demonstrate. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Ginger, let's set the scene for what to expect this week. You know, there's a lot of security at the Capitol. There's security at uh, all over the country, really, at state houses. We're seeing National Guard troops, uh, uh, police, obviously. People are really worried that there might be some violence going on leading up to the inauguration of Joe Biden and after. Uh, You're at the Capitol right now. What does it look like? What are we seeing? It is surreal, Oscar. I mean, I've worked in this building for nearly a decade, been here through all types of crisis and issues and big votes, and I've never seen something like this. I walk through the Capitol Visitor Center, which in normal times would be full of tourists, is now full of cots and National Guard sleeping in that space. I'm looking out at the Capitol building from an office building across the street. I can see police everywhere, armed troops, barbed wire fence. I mean, they've really locked this down. And as you said, there's sort of a national concern that we're going to see protests, that we're going to see more violence in the next few days. And I have to say, I think it would be hard pressed to get to the Capitol. Um, It's pretty locked down here in Washington. But that has left, as you pointed out, concerned in some of the state houses that they will see protests go there instead. I wanted to move on to an NBC News poll about President Trump's approval rating. Um, You know, he remains uh, pretty stable, I guess, you know, about 43 percent overall. But with Republicans, 87 percent still approve of him. So really didn't lose much in that sense of it. That's right. We uh, have a poll that tells us what has been just the case with Donald Trump from the beginning, which is that his people still stick with him. They think he is not to be blamed for the attack on the Capitol. They think that he was wronged and they believe him when he says falsely that the election was stolen from him. And I think that this is going to be a real challenge for Joe Biden, soon to be President Joe Biden, when he takes office. He has talked for the last year about unity, about bringing America together. And that's going to be a big challenge when um, such a significant chunk of America don't believe he's the legitimate president, believe that there was wrongdoing, and believe the, the frankly, lies that Donald Trump has continued to tell about the election. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I've been seeing more and more video of people storming the Capitol. You know, people's personal cell phone videos, they're taking it themselves. And, you know, they're invoking the president's name. They're, you know, saying we're on a mission. I think they said uh, at one point, oh, uh, Cruz, as in Ted Cruz, he would want us to do this while there are people are rifling through desks and taking pictures of documents and things. You can't pin it all on the president because people are going to do crazy things. But it's hard not to say that these people weren't doing that in his name. But it, it, it's nuts on that front. And, and, and then we look, you know, to what's going to happen this week. We're expecting some more pardons. Uh, the big one, will the president pardon himself? And that has a ton of questions with it because it's never happened before. You know, is it constitutional? People say yes, people say no. Uh, so th that's one thing to look out for this week on, on the president's side. We keep being warned by the White House that we could see an onslaught of pardons coming, that the president is considering pardons, that they're being put together. Um, this hasn't happened yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see it before noon on Wednesday. Pardoning himself is going to be tricky, and I think that there could be a lot of legal questions created by that, whether or not someone can do that. But for the most part, constitutional scholars do think he has quite a bit of ability to pardon anyone else that might be under investigation or have committed a federal crime. It's going to look really strange if he tries to pardon <laughs> his family and says, I don't think you did anything wrong, but just in case, here's a pardon. Yeah, um, messaging on that's kind of tricky. That, that's my question, too, is like, what is he going to pardon himself for? My understanding is you can't pardon in terms of impeachment, so you can't do that. Pardonings only apply to federal crimes, not state crimes. So if a state has something against them, you know, that could still go forward. So what is he going to pardon himself for? If you read the pardon that Nixon received, um, it did say, we don't think he did anything wrong, but just in case anyone does think he did anything wrong, here's sort of a blanket pardon. Oh, wow. um, so there, there is a little bit of a precedent for that. But again, how do you tell the American people, I, I'm totally innocent, my family is totally innocent, we've done nothing wrong, but here's a pardon yeah. just in case I've, I've got one written up. Wow. Well, that's going to be subject to a lot of legal questions if it does happen. And finally, Joe Biden, obviously inaugurated on Wednesday, will become the next president. And we're expecting to see a lot of executive orders getting back into the Paris Climate Accord, mask mandates, immigration bills, tons of stuff, all, you know, packed into one. He's going to try to do a lot of stuff right away. That's right. He's going to be faced with just an unprecedented crisis. As crisis is, I mean, you talk about the pandemic, right. you talk about the economic crisis, you talk about the crisis that America is going through after the the attack on the Capitol. So he's going to try to punch out a bunch of those things very quickly. I suspect we're going to hear a lot of Republican opposition to a number of these, particularly the immigration stuff. Some of this will be undoing things that President Trump has done. Some of them might be new things, but um, it's all going to happen real fast. I think he's going to be swinging that pen a lot in the first 24 hours. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What they found is, you know, about three quarters of them still had at least one symptom. A lot of them were very fatigued. A lot of them had sleeping trouble. A lot of them had muscle weakness. Joining us now is Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Pam. I'm happy to be here. I wanted to talk about a big study that came out of China looking into how long people have symptoms after having COVID-19. In this study, it showed uh, it was a six-month checkup, and it showed that about three-quarters of the people still had at least one symptom. Some of the most common issues were ongoing exhaustion, muscle weakness, difficulty sleeping. So, Pam, what do we know about this study? Well, the importance 
of this study is that it really appears to be the largest study to follow people for as long as six months. And so, you know, a big question that so many COVID survivors have, so many of them are experiencing symptoms after they supposedly recover. And so people want to know, well, how long are we going to have this and how many people are going to be impaired and how serious are these impairments going to be? And so this is sort of the first large study that gets us closer to answering that question. And unfortunately, as you summarized, you know, the answer isn't really all that optimistic. This was one hospital in Wuhan, China, which of course is where the epidemic started, where the pandemic started. And they had about 1,700 patients, all of whom had been hospitalized. They were not necessarily the most severely ill hospitalized patients. We have a lot of indications that they were sick enough, obviously, to be in the hospital for probably an average of a couple of weeks, but very, very few of them needed ventilators. Most of them didn't even need like the most intensive form of non-invasive oxygen. So we're talking people who were sick, but not the sickest. Six months later, they brought them in and they did very thorough physical evaluations and interviews and lab tests and for some people, lung function tests. And what they found is, you know, about three quarters of them still had at least one symptom. A lot of them were very fatigued. A lot of them had sleeping trouble. A lot of them had muscle weakness. About a quarter of them had depression or anxiety. And a number of them also had trouble completing what's a sort of like standard physical endurance test called the six-minute walk test, which is what it sounds like, you know, how far you can walk in six minutes. A lot of them really scored very low on that. So there's clear evidence here that people are going to have a a pretty arduous journey back to health. I mean, that's got to be frustrating, especially that six-minute walk test, which shouldn't necessarily be too much heavy lifting, but even then people are experiencing difficulties. You know, anecdotally, even people that don't experience some of the most severe symptoms, even needing to be hospitalized, people retain some symptoms for a month. I had a cousin who got COVID-19. He lost his sense of smell and taste. And that's the one that lingered with him for, I want to say, about five months or so as well. And he hated that, obviously. So it's not even just the people that are hospitalized. You know, it's kind of uh, happens in a lot of different places as well. One of the interesting things that came up in this study was kind of the contrast between men and women, because we've been hearing that COVID affects men more severely than women. But in this report, it was, uh, I guess, more women. uh, Some of these uh, lingering symptoms were more common among women. Yeah, although not quite as big a gulf as you might imagine. I think in a lot of cases, issues like fatigue and anxiety and depression are more commonly reported by women maybe because they're more prone to report it, but there may be some immune system issues as well. There's immune system differences between men and women. So I was actually struck by the kind of relatively high proportion of men, I think it was 73% compared to 81% of women who still reported problems. And I think, by the way, what you just said earlier about these kinds of symptoms affecting people who have not been hospitalized. That is absolutely true. Many, many of the people who are showing up at these post-COVID clinics that some hospitals are opening are at this point people who were never physically ill enough to be hospitalized, but yet months later are experiencing 
still, you know, shortness of breath or weakness, a lot of cognitive brain fog and memory issues and smell and taste, all that sort of stuff. And I think that will end up really being quite a lingering legacy of this pandemic for a lot of people. You know, the interesting part of it is, is we've really been living and learning about this pandemic and this disease in real time. So we haven't even hit those even longer term markers where I'm sure there's a few studies. I think you mentioned a study or two that are looking to keep tabs on people longer term than just these six months to see what those true effects can be. And this has repercussions for everything, not only for your own personal health, but financially, medical bills down the road. This all has rippling effects. There are many people, particularly those with the sort of brain fog and that kind of thing, haven't been able to return to work or return to work fully. It is going to have a long lasting impact on individuals, their families, the economy. And yes, some of these studies, you know, this is the first one to really do a sort of rigorous look at six months out, but there are a number of studies that have started up in the United States and elsewhere where they're going to be following people for probably at least a couple of years, and that's going to be very important. Pam Bellick, health and science writer at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Even in my mind, I kind of would have maybe in the before time thought that, oh, if there's a virtual option, maybe people won't want to go out. Uh, maybe it's just easier to stay home. But now that everyone has stayed home for so long, my thinking has completely changed. Yeah. I'm like, of course, people will still want to go. But it would also be really nice to give the opportunity um, for people that can't make it or can't afford it to also be able to just see the show from home. Joining us now is Emily Yar, entertainment reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Thanks for having me. I can't wait till everything has calmed down, things are safe, and we can get back to concerts, other live events. Really, throughout this past year of the pandemic, obviously one of the industries that took such a huge hit, we couldn't gather with people, so these things couldn't be held anymore. But what it's done, you know, what we saw were a lot of people, a lot of events, bands, musicians, individuals, everything really transitioned to these virtual events. And it's really changed access to entertainment. You can sit in your living room now and watch some of your favorite artists performing and and doing things like that. So Emily, uh, you wrote an article about how it has changed and it could be for the better. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, I kind of thought of this idea because at the beginning of the pandemic, it was so upsetting just to see every plan I had, you know, get canceled, um, you know, going to festivals and concerts and even book talks and things like that. And I was really surprised, actually, when some of these things started moving online. I kind of, you know, begrudgingly was like, okay, like I'll give this a shot. But then I actually kind of really enjoyed them and realized I could, you know, suddenly see, yeah, like an author talk on a book tour who never would have come to D.C. where I live and watch that or, you know, watch some of these live stream shows and see acoustic performances um, from artists that I love when they, yeah, in normal times would have never done that. So I kind of grew to really enjoy it. And then I just started wondering the people that put on these performances, how do they feel about it? And do they think it's going to stay like this even when life goes back to normal? And I was really surprised at how many people said that they think, you know, even though they can't wait until in-person gatherings can safely resume, that they think live streaming will be a part of their lives and shows from now on. I mean, yeah, for some of these musicians that might have taken this approach, too, it really was a lifeline, a a way to still make some money because they couldn't tour because they couldn't do any of these things. One of the companies that you talked about in your article is called Stage It, and they were hosting a lot of these events. And the interaction was pretty robust. They can set up Q&As. 
have a little chat room so people can kind of talk while the performances are going on. And you build these little communities, which I think is kind of one of the coolest parts of it. And also one of the things that make it a little more endearing, uh, make people want to be part of these events even more. One of the artists I talked to was Rhett Miller on the old 97s, and he said he was so surprised by how much he enjoyed these live concerts, and he really did it. He said out of necessity, you know, he has kids at home. Um, He's like, I'm thinking about the college fund, and I just needed a way to make money while I was off the road. And so Staging is different than some other platforms because you have to pay for a ticket. In some cases, I think it's pay what you can, but you have to pay to get in. And you can also, there's a function where you can tip the singers um, while they're performing. So yeah, he said he's um, on track to do 200 shows by the one-year anniversary of when everything shut down and that some of the regulars who tune into a lot of his shows have become like kind of real life friends. Um, you know, they talk online every week when they see these concerts. So yeah, it's again, a kind of a surprising way, but um, can definitely be a sustainable way to kind of build your own community. This could be all included, you know, obviously nothing's going to replace live events, especially on the revenue side for venues and the musicians themselves, but this is going to be all part of the mix. And you can think about how other big uh, you know festivals as you mentioned too uh, like Coachella obviously they have their two weekend events now but they stream everything live on the first weekend and they get huge numbers for people just wanting to tune in to see the spectacles see their favorite artists you see things like virtual concerts and events on Fortnite on the video game so this is going to be increasingly part of the mix for everybody really the CEO of Stage It that I talked to said that he's already talking to other venues across the country that basically, um, want, you know, when things do go back to normal, they still want a setup for a camera, you know, to stream shows and bars and clubs and things like that. And obviously there'll be, you know, restrictions for it either regionally or they won't let people live stream. Like if you have to sell a certain number of tickets or a venue has to sell out before you do that. But I think it's really great. And I guess even in my mind, I kind of would have maybe in the before times thought that, oh, if there's a virtual option, maybe people won't want to go out. Uh, maybe it's just easier to stay home. But now that everyone has stayed home for so long, my thinking has completely changed. Yeah. I'm like, of course, people will still want to go. But it would also be really nice to give the opportunity um, for people that can't make it or can't afford it to also be able to just see the show from home. I think that is a wonderful idea about putting cameras up in bars and clubs. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to buy a ticket, something local for me that I couldn't see. And if they had this option, I would almost definitely want to see it, especially if it was one of my favorite bands, things like that. The last thing I wanted to bring up, you know, it's not just musicians. You did mention book tours and you spoke to an author who really didn't think it would work out, but it ended up being so well. I mean, she did kind of a worldwide book tour over these virtual events. Um, So I talked to Britt Bennett, who wrote uh, The Vanishing Half, which was um, a huge book last year. And it was her second book. And she said, yeah, she was really nervous. Um, You know, her first uh, book tour, obviously, she went all over the place. And I think she said, you know, at that point, so many people were watching so many things. Like, why would someone want to tune in to hear me talk? But she was really surprised that, um, you know, she got a huge response. And as a result, she was able to, um, you know, do book talks in places that her publishers never would have sent her. She said, yeah, it went all over the world. Um, You know, one day she would be doing a book talk in San Diego and the next she'd be doing a podcast in South Africa and she said that yeah one of her takeaways is she hopes publishers kind of learn that readers really are everywhere and they can kind of diversify um, where they send authors again when everything opens back up. Emily Yar, entertainment reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.